Before we start, just a quick announcement. To celebrate National Science Week, in situ science, we'll be doing another live podcast. On the 9th of August at the Camelot Lounge in Marrickville, we will have a panel of Sydney's brightest scientists and science communicators talking about the realities of a life in science. The event is called Life vs. Science. There will be food, drink, and all sorts of nonsense. Find out more at insituscience.com or on the Sydney Science Festival website. It's going to be great. I'll see you there. Back, you're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we get a glimpse into the lives of scientists and their careers. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by biologist, mycologist, and primitive skills expert, Todd Elliott. Todd, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Now, I feel like, first of all, we should get this out of the way. Are fun guy puns the bane of your existence? <laughs> Occasionally, but I try to mold minds when I can. Ah, good. <laughs> That's going to be my next question. What, what's, what's the best alternative to fun guy puns? <laughs> fun Good. gal puns? I don't know. <laughs> so you're here now at the University of New England. You've just started your is it a PhD project. Yes, working on a PhD. Yep, and you're doing stuff on fungal ecology and their interactions with animals. Exactly, exactly. I'm sort of working on how a lot of the fungi that are tied into the ecosystem move through the and how they're dispersed, mm-hmm. particularly in relation to how animals are dispersing them. How are animals dispersing them? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the majority of fungi um, reproduce, and the fruiting body that you see are like an apple off an apple tree. The majority of the organism is above, is actually below the ground, and composed of all these thread-like structures called mycelia. Mm-hmm. And the mycelia are non-reproductive. So the actual fruiting body is like an apple. Mm. And that's where the spores are produced. And so fungi have evolved many different ways to release these spores and get them out into the environment. But it turns out that many of the fungi actually form what are commonly called truffles, or Mm. more formally, sequestrate fungi. And these, these groups of mushrooms are totally enclosed, and they often grow below the ground, where it's more protected, and they then can't disperse the spores via the air. So they depend on releasing aromas that attract animals who then come and eat them and then carry them off through the forest and deposit them through their scats. All right. It seems a backward strategy for something that wants to be eaten to be hidden underground. Exactly. (laughs) But if you're above ground, you get eaten as soon as you're seen. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're reproductive. Okay. And that your spores might not be viable. They might yeah. not be able to germinate and continue to grow. Yeah. Now, truffles are these sort of gourmet foods, uh, delicacies, whatever you call them. Exactly. Is the stuff you're doing then going to be of interest to industry and the travel um, industry? Most of the work I'm doing are with fungi that are not necessarily important for okay. humans. Yeah. But they're super important for the environment. Because yeah. a lot of them actually... Their non-reproductive parts tie into trees' roots, and they go around the, ce- the cells and the root and mm. help the nutrients get into the plant. And in exchange, the plant feeds the fungus sugars through photosynthesis. All right. And so about 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet depend on these type of associations. Yeah. So it's very, very vital to the survival of all the green stuff, all the vascular plants that we see. Yeah, yeah. I feel like fungi have such... Uh, important roles to play in such uh, dynamic life cycles, but they tend to get overlooked. They by do. Cute even and fuzzy biologists. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
Well, a lot of, as one of my mentors says, that a lot of the um, biologists tend to think and ecologists tend to think that the ecosystem starts at the root crown and goes up. Yeah. Um, when a lot of the biofunctions that are happening in the environment around us are actually happening in the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And fungi are actually releasing enzymes outside of their bodies, which breaks down all sorts of organic matters, can take nutrients out of wood, can take nutrients out of rock, can take it out of the soil, and then that allows it to be fed back into the system. Yeah. So uh, actually a couple of podcasts ago, we were talking to Martin Stapper, who is a very passionate soil agronomist <laughs> and talking about uh, essentially keeping healthy soils. Yes. And the health of our planet. <laughs> yeah. And he talked a lot about how you know, modern farming practices and that sort of stuff are actually kind of sterilizing soils. Yes. And I guess this ties into what you're talking about, that having things like fungi in the soils is a key to... Exactly. And the, the fungi help in the long run. Mm-hmm. So you can apply nitrogen. You can apply all sorts of chemical fertilizers. Yeah. But they're short-term blips. Yeah. And they don't actually carry the soil health long-term. Mm-hmm. Like I was down in some parts of Australia recently and saw where they're doing what they call spray grazing, where they yeah. actually will herbicide and then spray in seeds with fertilizer mm-hmm. that are essentially Roundup Ready. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you're killing off a lot of the soil microbes yeah, yeah, yeah. and the fungal community as well. And like a lot of it, when in Australia, for example, when the first Europeans came in, they cut down a lot of the trees and then they took out a lot of the billabongs and naturally formed dams, mm. which dropped the water table meters in many mm. places. And then eucalyptus has lots of oils in his leaves. Those leaves drop, they hit the ground, they release oils into the soil, and then it creates a hydrophobic layer, a sort of a water-fearing layer if we translated it. Yeah. And when the water hits, it runs straight off that surface and goes into those gullies, which no longer have their sort of billabongs, which slowed the water flow, and it trenches them further and further right. and further. And you can go through a lot of areas in Australia, and you see that dropping the water table. And then yeah. to make things worse, a lot of the... Europeans introduced foxes mm-hmm. and foxes and cats and a lot of these feral animals and they started eating a lot of the small native animals. Well, it turns out that a lot of those native animals were digging up and eating truffles <laughs> and those truffles through digging, when you look at actual the soil turnover, one individual might dig a hundred digs in a night. Mm. Well, that doesn't seem like that much, but then when you extrapolate it to say five, 10, 15, 20, 30 animals in a given hectare, that's like having a rototiller come through. Yeah. And then they, they were turning the soil, which aerated it, which allowed the water to better penetrate. And then they were dispersing those fungi, which tied into the tree's roots. Mm. When you remove all that out of the system, it all sort of spirals out of control. Now the, fire, the soils aren't getting aerated. A lot of those forest systems that were historically a lot moister than they were mm. are not getting their nutrient cycled in. They're not getting leaf litter decomposed then the eucalyptus and a lot of other trees aren't regenerating as vigorously. Mm. And then when fires come through, they burn way hotter. They burn up all the leaf litter, which essentially fires the soil, as if you were making ceramics, which then kills off the fungi that are tied into the tree's roots, and you start to see a lot of the eucalyptus die back. And it's had rippling impacts for the long-term health of all the forest systems and grassland systems in Australia. So if you can get more information on how animals are helping disperse these fungi. So I keep saying fungi. What's, what's your thoughts on fungi or fungi? Well, it depends on <laughs> tomato or tomato. <laughs> All right. <laughs> good, good. I heard it from an expert. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but if you can I had one inf- friend say the Romans are dead, so we don't know how Latin was said. 
Good. I think I've heard more mycologists say fungi yeah. th- than, than fungi. But... It just depends All right, where you are enough. in the world. <laughs> I'm American, but... so I say it. Americans talk funny, or Americans say that Aussies talk funny. I don't know which way it is. Well, I'm somewhere around the middle of three different <laughs> accents, so I say everything funny. But <laughs> if we could get information on how these animals are dispersing these truffles or these fungi, will that help us understand their potential to sort of inoculate soils that are, are detrimental? Exactly, exactly. And... Um, we can look at, because some of these introduction programs into fenced areas that have animal exclosures for predators, yeah. um, if there's not a strong enough and healthy enough fungal community in the systems, there's not enough food. Because it turns out that a lot of these mammals eat 80, 90, even percent of their diet is composed of truffles. Oh, and so yeah. if they're just not there, it's hard on them. Yeah. And so they're going to struggle to survive. And it's interesting because in the, among mammologists... Most of the studies that show animals to eat fungi um, are based on doing microscopic examinations of scats. All right. And then some of the squirrels, they hang mushrooms out and dry them, so those are obvious, and mm-hmm. those are reported. But there's very rarely actual visual observations of the fungi being eaten. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the bird literature, there's very little information on birds' use of fungi. All right. And what little information is there, oh, the majority of it is based on just chance observations. Yeah. So we also don't realize in what the role birds might be playing in dispersal because they are moving much further and covering much larger areas. Mm-hmm. And so which animals are you going to be focusing on for this project? Well, I'm doing a mix of different ones. All right. Um, so sort of the, the main target of my project is looking at carnivores and how they are dispersing spores further than the small mammals because mm-hmm. they eat a bush rat or they eat whatever. And then they're carrying it much larger areas in their territories, whereas a small mammal is doing important regional dispersal, but not necessarily moving it between disjointed and disjuncted um, forest patches. Right. So, not this, so something like a dingo. Exactly. We're going to be doing these long-distance dispersal, but they're not necessarily eating the, fu- the fungi primarily. They're eating the small mammals and eating the fungi. Exactly. So it needs that truffle to survive through two different digestive tracts. Exactly. And no one's really looked at carnivore dispersal. Okay. So it adds an interesting element for sort of the biogeography. Yeah. And then I'm hoping to tie that in with birds as well to look at, say, okay, birds that are migrating, what's their dispersal range? Because we know that there's going to be a target window when a lot of spores are deposited in the scats. But mm. then digestive tracts are complex and spores get hung up. And so, sure, there's a peak period when there's going to be a lot of spores coming, but then a lot of them will trickle on for days after it was ingested. All right. So you know, you're a bit of a, a fungal expert. Really. I don't know if an expert. They just say someone's 50 miles away from home, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of you know, back home, you, you just released a book. I did. <laughs> Thanks to Timber Press. Book. <laughs> um, it's a field guide to um, mushrooms in the southeastern U.S., mm-hmm. sort of focusing on all different different groups, um, particularly ones that I find interesting, yeah. um, as well as a lot of the common ones that would be encountered in that region. And mm-hmm. Deal with some of the, the ethnomycology, the sort of historic uses by humans, as well as medicinals and edibles and 
yeah. those sorts of things. Well, as I well was going to be my, of it. my next question. How many people come to you asking for advice on, on shrooms? <laughs> Depends uh, on how you define shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's their edibles and then there's your, your recreational ones. How, how well, the recreational ones, people usually go to the street corner, not to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the cow pie. But um, as far as... I, I do get a fair number of people saying, oh, can I eat this? Can I eat this? Yeah. And... Um, it's it's an interesting interesting phenomenon because almost everywhere in the world that was a British colony, mm. there's a deep sort of steeped mycophobia, and people just are afraid no, no. of mushrooms. Yeah. And most of the historical information about what native people used is nearly gone. Right. Um, whereas you go to a lot of places in other parts of the world that haven't had as heavily of British influence, people are eating huge amounts of mushrooms. Mm. And we're not talking about psychedelics. We're talking about ones that are nutritionally important. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of the older literature will tell you, oh, mushrooms are not, not good nutrition. You can't get anything out of them. Oh. Well, that's interesting because fungal cell walls are made of chitin, same mm. thing that insect skeletons are. And as humans, when we eat them raw, we can't get much nutrient out of them. But as soon as you expose them to heat and cook them, you, there's actually a lot of nutritional value. And dried weight of mushrooms, the protein in comparison in a dried sample versus meat, it's very, very similar. Sometimes mm. even more protein in a mushroom. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to harvest them, particularly if you're living in a subsistence existence, a lot more sustainable. Mm. And um, there's some talk about doing a lot of burgers that replaced gradually <laughs> with higher and higher percentages of mushrooms because the actual environmental cost of growing and eating mushrooms is... Mm. Way can outweigh a lot of what you'd get with beef or things like that. And I'm not trying to put down the beef industry or whatever, but <laughs> the, um, the idea of sort of incorporating fungi more in our diets yeah. is both in nutritionally important. And a lot of them have important compounds that can help our immune system. Mm. I even so, just so. remember where I grew up near high school, there was a big mushroom farm, and <laughs> in the school holidays, everybody would get work just going out and picking mushrooms. Picking mushrooms. And, <laughs> yeah, it was a very, really simple setup. They just had yeah. big... What were they picking? Do you know? I have no idea. They were just... <laughs> uh, they were just sort of, you know, your little button-cut mushroom type of things, yeah. and, and just, yeah, they just had tubs of dirt that, well... Looked to me just like tubs of dirt that they were growing yeah. these things in, keeping them moist, and yeah, yeah, pretty easy to grow. It's the, the kind of thing that you could just have a little backyard plot growing yeah. your mushrooms. You think? Certainly, I mean, a lot of the um, the mushrooms that I think are worth cultivating, button mushrooms are great. Yeah, but there's a lot of other ones that are easier to grow, particularly for the home enthusiast, that mm. you can grow them on piece straw, on rice, mm. on cut pieces of wood, all, all right. different things like that, wood chips. Yeah. Um, you can grow them in your flower beds between rows, things like that. Yeah. And um, it's going to be helping a lot of the soil mm. microorganisms as well because you get all sorts of bacteria and there's all these interface between fungi and a lot of microorganisms. Mm. And so even then, I imagine people thinking about doing that, they you know, would have this inbuilt hesitation that they're going to grow something harmful or yeah. you know, even just you know, the idea of having mold on your food you know, <laughs> yes. makes people light. Well, I mean, I heard something about, you know, penicillin. That was a moldy bread it was isolated from. So, hey, even molds aren't always that bad. But do you think it was just the early literature that spread this idea that they're bad? Or is there something else that... Well, I think traditionally, whenever you take people's um, traditional land-based knowledge away, yeah. it helps with politics, essentially. Oh. Because in Back to a Hunter-Gatherers, 
if you didn't like the politics of a region mm. and you didn't like the tribe that was in power, you know how to get your food from the land and you moved on. Yeah. And when you look at as soon as you get the king's deer that you can't go hunting in those grounds, then you have to start farming. Mm. And then you can't just up and leave because you can't get your food unless you harvest your crops. Mm. So people end up getting forced into this sort of more sedentary lifestyle. And I think in a lot of some places in Europe, when it got more and more crowded and to be able to sort of enforce legal reigns, if you start sort of making things that are of the wild taboo, mm. people become easier to sort of use and uh, get military forces and build governments and those sorts of things. And I'm not trying to make it sound like an anarchist, <laughs> but in, in the sense of looking at these as traditional food ways that are nutritionally important and harvesting things from the wild, it keeps us connected back to the land, which yeah. the more people are connected, the more they care, which then makes it easier to argue for conservation. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you're not an anarchist, but you are a proponent of this idea of, well, what we called primitive skills before, <laughs> and this idea of being in touch with nature a bit. What, what counts as a primitive skill? Well, primitive skills are the base to everything. Yeah. Um, so the same, the same muscles and the same mindset it takes to be able to rub two sticks together to get a piece of, get fire, mm. is this, the premise of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Knowing how to sustain and get what you need out of the land it also, to, in my mind, develops a deeper connection. Mm. And so whether you're a biologist focused on conservation or whether you're an urbanite trying to get tied back to the land, mm. this is something that if you go back in any of our lineages, no matter whether you're an Inuit from the North Pole or whether you're a Tasmanian Aboriginal people, mm. you were doing very, very similar skills Mm. in historic times. And so when you look at it, the techniques that were used among Sands Bushmen in Africa, mm. among Ab Australian Aborigines, among Amazonian tribes, they're all very, very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And to me, it sort of reminds us that, yes, we all have differences, but ultimately we're all one big human family. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time with people in villages and in traditional areas learning these skills. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've been able to to see those similarities and yeah they, certainly and is it just a matter of you know, using those same skills with uh, different plants or different rocks exactly yeah. exactly yes and the the say if you look at flint napping for example mm. the process of making basic stone tools mm. what the rock is is different but ultimately high crystalline structures fracture the same the world over mm. so people are going to be making sure their arrowheads might be slightly different styles, mm. but the basic percussion, the basic angles, the basic physics of it all is the same. Mm. So we're all sort of trapped in these urban jungles now. Yes. Is there still opportunity to use these skills or is it more of a, a hobby? What, well, what I mean, it's it? It, whether you're a survivalist or whether you're in my eyes, I choose to say I'm more of a thrivalist. Mm. And the more connected you can be to the land, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to show that even adding a little bit of green space into your day-to-day -day life and your commute, if you walk through the, the edge of the bush, yeah. you're going to be able to tie yourself back in and it does all sorts of wonderful things for our brain pathways. Yeah. I feel like we've reached a... You know, we're at some sort of peak of disconnect from 
reality a little bit. I mean, you know, or have since, we been saying that for generations? I don't know. Oh well, yes, I mean, <laughs> since the industrial revolution, yeah, we've had that disconnect from having to deal with nature and the landscape. But even now, so there's that disconnect from just other people with things like the internet yes. and technology and things. I mean, is how, how does one person start making that reconnection? Because it's a big, uh, it's a big leap down yeah. to you know, making fire with rocks type <laughs> of thing. Where where do you start? Well, I mean, you start by where your interest and your heart calls you. Yeah. Um, so for some people, it's finding good food. Mm. We all do it. We all eat. Yeah. Hopefully, we at least try to. <laughs> and um, some of us do it several times a day. And <laughs> so just the basics of whether it's knowing your farmer or whether it's learning the, the plants that you're eating yeah. or learning the relationship of other wild plants to the plants you're eating because yeah. almost everything you can walk into the supermarket and purchase mm. has wild relatives mm. and many of them are as good or better. We just can't package them and ship them. Mm. And so learning those connections can tie you back into your food. And for a lot of people, it's going through the food. For some people, it's, oh, they need a new hobby. Mm. Um, other people, it's to understand the bigger picture, to understand what makes us all human. Mm. So, I mean, so you kind of grew up with this connection to the land, right? Well, more than some people and less than others. Yeah. Um, yes, I grew up in rural western North Carolina in the U.S., mm. and um, we sort of homesteaded and raised a lot of our food and foraged a lot of it out of the bush or the mountains. Mm. I feel like for people like myself, you know, I was raised in... You know, suburbia. So my, my skills are kind of more. I can I can pull a trolley bar out of a shopping cart, and I can, I'm really good at Mario Kart. But <laughs> making that, even even coming to you know, a smaller town like Armadale, there is a bit of a there's an intimidation factor that you know I'm I'm not a country boy, and I never will be. But you're a biologist. Yeah, and, that, and really what, that's what, what called you into biology. Well, I like exploring. I like, uh, I mean, animals were always a fascination. Yeah. And it really wasn't until I became a biologist that I then had the opportunity to go out and be in nature and yeah. go trekking and all that sort of stuff. And what's it done for you? Tons of all that sort of stuff you said, giving me perspective and yeah. uh, helped me reconnect with reality a little bit and... and and for me, that's been my little conduit to, to yep. reconnect in a little way. And if I didn't have that, I'd, yeah, I don't know if I would have. It might have just been easier just to stay in my little bubble. Yeah. Well, what would you say to people that <laughs> are, are trapped like that? It's just it's too hard or, or I'm, not, I'm, I'm not good enough. Well, humans are pretty wild in themselves. Yeah. You can find a lot of understanding of the natural instincts just through watching each other mm. um but wherever you are whether it's in a prison cell you're going to get that has an open top you're going to be able to see out in the prison yard yeah. birds flying over yeah and there's a perfect example of behavior and you realize that whether you look at the cells in our body they're complex organisms mm. that go from these endosymbiotic organs that have bacterial dna in our mitochondria mm. on up to looking at the whole forest system and I think one of the most interesting things to look at is the natural areas that interface with humans. Mm. And there's something I like to call synanthropic species. So plants, animals, 
insects, you name it, bacteria that are evolved to work on that sort of edge zone between mm. interfaces. And when you look at it, I remember when I was um, growing up, a lot of people would eat this plant called pokeweed mm. or poke salad. And poke salad is um, what I'd consider a very classic synanthropic species. Mm. And it, um, it's in the genus Phylanthus. Sorry, not Phylanthus, Phytolacca. Mm-hmm. And um, Phytolacca is sort of a cosmopolitan genus. There's a, it's in most places, not quite everywhere. But it, um, where I'm from, you go along the edge of an old fallow field or an edge of an old homestead. Mm-hmm. And right there in the light gap, you'll see it growing. Okay. And the native, and native folks, as well as a lot of folks of my generation, would go out and just break the tops out of these when they were young in the spring. And you cook it, and you boil it in several waters, and you pour the water off. Mm-hmm. And after this goes on, you pour it off a few different times. The plant goes from something that's toxic to something that's very nutritious and healthy. All right. And so I was like, okay, well, here's a plant that I've grown up around. Mm-hmm. And then I was been dropped off on a bush landing, old abandoned diamond mining strip in the northern Amazon. And dropped off there and was met by this team of Patamona native folks. And we went off way out in the bush. Mm-hmm. And we were in virgin forests, um, hardly any, any human contact. And we um, came out at one point because our rations were getting a little low and we thought we'd stop in at this native village that was a few kilometers away. And we came into this village and they have a slash and burn farm mm-hmm. and the entire plant community totally changed. Okay. And growing right out alongside one of the farms is a pokeweed. <laughs> Same genus, different species, right. that what I was growing up with. And yeah. I turned to one of the native guys and asked him if they use that plant. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. we call it bushkalalu. <laughs> and he ex- proceeded to explain how to prepare it exactly the uh-huh. same as my neighbors that I grew up among in the U.S. Yeah. And so almost everywhere you go, this, this plant, and I never saw it anywhere else except along the edge of that slash and burn farm. Mm-hmm. So this plant was dependent on that type of human disturbance. Yeah. And so when you look at the edges of cityscapes, the edges mm. of vacant lots, a lot of the plants that could be eaten and can be harvested and can be foraged are the same ones that are dependent on that sort of human disturbance. Mm. And there's been some research to say that humans, when you take them out of the system, depending on where in the world, you're taking away something that has caused disturbance mm. for thousands of years. Yeah. And the plants and animals have co-evolved with that type of disturbance. And now I'm not saying we need to show up with a bulldozer and take a mountaintop off. But when you look at it on a smaller scale, mm. we're always going to be changing the landscape. Yeah. As long as humans are here, we just can't help it. But we can look at how to sort of do the changes that are similar to what we've been doing for a long time. Mm. And so I urge people that are in urban areas to look because some of the most interesting and fascinating interactions in the natural world are taking place in that vacant lot three blocks from your house. <laughs> And that is probably a case that we should be living in amongst these habitats as opposed to building a fence and saying this is where people live, this is where animals live. Exactly. Type of thing, yeah. Exactly. And in the long-term perspective, unless we get population under control, unless we get a lot of things under control, our greenhouse gases, everything, the planet's going to be changing so fast. Mm. But we can look at how we can change it. Mm. That's going to be the least damaging. So you grew up... Out in North Carolina, and you get to know plants and resources and animals around there, and how you Still could use learn. them. <laughs> well, 
now that you are globetrotting all around the place and now you're here in Australia, you know, as a, a, a relative newbie, where do you start then learning about natural resources and how to go about things? Well, it's interesting because families, when we look at taxonomy, some people think it's a dry, not very useful skill. But I like to urge people to think that taxonomy is about awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's about fine-tuning your perception of differences. Mm-hmm. And not differences is in a bad way, just differences in subtleties in what make things unique. Yeah. And we're all taxonomists. That's the only reason we're here. Our ancestors were taxonomists. That's how we knew what to eat. Mm-hmm. The very reason we survived the gauntlet of evolution mm-hmm. is because we knew how to separate things. And so... Particularly, the more I look at the world from a global perspective, the more I realize the importance of taxonomy. Because if you can learn, say, family groups in plants, for example, mm-hmm. you can then learn a lot of the chemical constituents in a family or in a genus are shared around the world. Sure, there may be differences and there may be increased potencies in some and decreased in others. Yeah. But you can then determine, okay, this is going to be a safe group of organisms, or this group of organisms is going to do this, or, hey, look, it's a legume. It's going to be fixing nitrogen. So maybe how is it pulling into the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. So you can understand both potential food Mm -hmm. as well as sort of understand from a conservation standpoint which species are going to be most interesting to work with given your own interests. Yeah. And this has been something you've been able to do since coming to Australia? A bit, a bit. Yeah, I was just, just out on a field trip recently, mm-hmm. and um, I found a genus of fungi that I know pretty well. But there was a member of it that I looked into the information on, and I couldn't find anything about the edibility of it in Australia. All right. But this is a very calculated risk. I don't encourage people to do this. <laughs> but I did a lot of research on that genus, and... I knew in other parts of the world the edibility. I knew the toxicity of any of those groups. And I made a very calculated choice and ate it. And it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that traditional people in this this part of the world would have been eating that species because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of it. But because of sort of phobias, we realized that that that's just missed Mm -hmm. and wasn't recorded by anthropologists. But... Again, very, very calculated risk. Not something... And there's a lot of groups of mushrooms I would absolutely never do that with. Okay. But there's some that you can say, for example, you know, the genus that composes the chanterelles. A lot of those are all over the world. And people on every continent are eating them. But because someplace there's an obscure species and colonists came in and obliterated all the traditional knowledge we can pretty well guess that this is going to be an edible group in there. But again, very calculated risk, (laughs) not something that I encourage people who are just learning mushrooms to do. (laughs) So there is, you often hear about, I don't know, rule of thumb, the stories about mushrooms, whether it's edible, and you know, if you boil them up, the water turns black, it's no good. Is there anything like that? No rules of thumb in in mushrooms. Okay. Only only taxonomy. (laughs) And once you learn the basics of groups. Yeah. And the reality is, there's very dangerous plants out there. Yeah. But we eat solanums. That's what tomatoes are in, the tomatoes, as you say here, um, capsicums, <laughs> um, uh, potatoes. They're all members of a very toxic plant family. Mm-hmm. And various parts of all those plants would not be good to ingest. Yeah. But we eat them. And there's similar differences in the mushroom world that it's just a matter of learning subtle differences. Just like I can tell 
you from your office mate. You know, mm. it's, it, it's easy to tell people apart. It's just, again, getting back to honing into telling differences. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to really adopt this sort of way of thinking, it, it totally changes your lifestyle. Well, it can. It makes you more in tune to things and mm. that you, it's hard to drive down the road anywhere without going, oh, what's that? Yeah. It makes it, it's hard to get between point A and point B without taking side Even detours. Even just the, the, the time it takes to develop this knowledge and stuff, it's, you know, for someone that might have a, a nine to five office job, then they have to spend a lot of time outside of that. Not necessarily. No? In your, in your commute to work, start paying attention to when things flower, when things are <laughs> blooming, when things are leafing out. Hey, look at that leaf. Pick a leaf on your way to the office and study it. Set it on the desk. Think yeah. about think about those veins. Think about how all the sugars are moving in. How there's little tiny single-celled organisms inside of the chloroplasts. <laughs> and when you sequence the chloroplasts, it's actually a bacteria. It's not a plant. Mm. And you think about it's all from a micro level all to a macro level. Yeah. It's all very interconnected. It's good to hear that your your seems to be your take-home messages is just whatever you can do. To find that connection, do it. Yeah, just pay attention to the world around. Yeah. And the more we care, the more we can conserve. Yeah, I feel like sort of what I was hinting at before is there's sometimes this assumption that, uh, you know, people will be a little bit exclusive about the land and, you know, there there are people around here that are like, oh, you've never shown a sheep before, well, you're not a real man type of thing. But you don't think that's necessarily the case. It's... Oh, it's, we all have different life experiences, <laughs> and we all have different things we can bring to the table. <laughs> and your, your life experience has obviously been uh, tied in very closely to this. And getting back to sort of fungi and mushrooms, do you remember where that fascination started, or has it always just been a oh, part of it? just one of my first words. Shroom, shroom, shroom. And so now, uh, you know, working with these mushrooms... Yep. How do you, as a science communicator and as an educator, approach sharing the wonders of it? I mean, once you get into them, it's incredible. Is there like a gateway sort of drug to getting people enthusiastic about fungus? Well, it all depends on your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with um, folks who are health practitioners and doctors, mm-hmm. everything from immunosuppressants that make organ transplants possible to um, immune system functions, mm-hmm. um, white blood cell counts, um, all these different compounds that fungi can impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a health standpoint, um, if you're talking, approaching it from a sort of ecosystem standpoint, you can think just to start out with that 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet are depending on the below ground system. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about the, what the organic matter would look like on this planet if fungi weren't breaking down mm-hmm. all the cellulose and lignin, all the leaves and wood and build up of organic material and be impossible. We wouldn't have nutrient cycling. Soils would very quickly become depleted. Mm. Um, when you look at it from just the pure fascination, there's insects that have their minds altered and they climb to high points and have fungi sp- ants that have fungi sprouting out of their heads. Mm. And um, there's sort of mo- most avenues you approach it from, whether you're a foodie just shave some slivers of truffle on top of your meal and watch your wallet empty and your olfactory senses be stimulated. I actually don't like um, truffles that much. I'm a bit of an outsider. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's just like any group of organisms. It's incredibly mm. diverse. And we also realize that we know, oh, maybe 15% of the fungi mm. in the world. Um, 
incredible, incredible diversity that we just don't even, can't even comprehend. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised at the lack of fungus in pop culture. If that <laughs> makes sense. So I've, been, I've been doing lots of science events and yes. sort of even just writing science-themed trivia and whenever either you, you do an animals or a plants-themed thing, there's tons of ways to tie it back into pop culture. You know, animals yes. is obvious. There's always cartoon animals, but there's even plants that they've made into you know, human-like characters and, and use them as inspiration for science fiction and all that stuff. I don't think fungus has been represented as well as it could have been. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's uh, Super Mario mushrooms and uh, <laughs> there's the uh, the Last of Us video game where the zombie apocalypse is brought on by a human cordyceps. There you go. <laughs> but I, I, I think there's a big open space there to bring this yep. sort of stuff into pop culture. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it just depends on the culture, too, mm. that you're operating within. I mean, if you look at Russia, Putin on his vacations was out picking mushrooms mm. to cook up. Mm. Um, it, it just depends. Eastern European, a lot of European culture, um, a lot of countries have mushrooms on their stamps. Um, it's in a lot of cultures, but a lot of places that are heavily British-influenced, there's just almost nothing. We're in a, we're in a mushroom depauperate world a here lot in the of, West. A lot of um, Asian cultures have yeah. incredible amounts of fungi in their diets as well as in their culture. Well, yeah, we were even just doing work out in Southeast Asia. Cordyceps is a massive deal there. You can yeah. buy it at every corner store. Yeah. It's meant to restore your vigor and all sorts of wonderful <laughs> stuff. Yes, I mean, if you go into sort of the a small corner store in even in a big city in the Western world and go to the Asian food section, mm. you'll see more fungal diversity than you'd see in the average sort of health food store in yeah. a British influenced place. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's start coming up with a plan to, to <laughs> I don't know, promote fungi throughout the colonies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if, if people are, are in the one of these... The Commonwealth Fungal Games. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> if people are, are in uh, one of these colonies, that being the, the US, and they want to learn about mushrooms of the Southeast, <laughs> they can check out your book. Yes, they can. And isn't that's available online it somewhere, is. I guess. Yep. yep, Mushrooms of the Southeast. All right, just Google Todd that play that. <laughs> and if you want to know more about your work and your... We didn't even talk about your, your performing or anything oh. like that. <laughs> if you want to check out your work, yeah, you have a look website. At, like look at my website, yep. toddelliot.weebly.com. And you're on Instagram. And, I'm on Instagram. And what's yep. that under? Um, Todd F. Elliot. Two, two D's, two L's. And two T's. Two T's. And an F right. in the middle. All right. <laughs> All right. Good. And Twitter at... Todd F. Elliot 1, right? That's correct. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank well, you thanks for having me. Thanks for being my first ever mycologist on the podcast. Well, there you go. I'll try to be a fun guy when I can. Ah, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back on and work on more of these puns. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. All right. Thanks again. And thank you guys for listening. Check out the site at nc2science.com. We're at nc2science on social media. Make sure to subscribe, drop us a review, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.